Baseball Podcast, Analytics and Stats, with Ben and Meg, from Fangraphs, Effectively Wild, Effectively Wild, Effectively Wild. Hello and welcome to episode 2059 of Effectively Wild, the Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Riley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm all right, you know? We're uh, co-chief podcast officers of Effectively Wild, and we are still in those positions. <sighs> who would fire us? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who has the authority to? I guess David Appleman could, but and, I don't know. And uh, there could be a, an uprising among the, the Patreon supporters, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, I'm sure they'd have our backs. I don't know whether Red Sox fans have the back of Heim Bloom to the same extent, but yeah. we can talk about that because we've got some front office maneuvering front office news here we have a president of baseball operations staying in washington dc mike rizzo staying a couple years longer but more notable perhaps always more notable to have a firing than an extension is heim bloom of the red sox but no longer of the red sox because he got the axe yeah what do you think is this uh Fall guy scapegoat situation, or is this a deserved, yeah, he had it coming to the extent that we can ever tell from afar? My first thought upon surveying the wreckage of this news on Twitter is that it's as much a Rorschach test for the people reacting to it as it is anything else. Like, I've seen some takes, and I'm a little surprised by the fire behind some of them because... Here's my read on this situation. You tell me if you think I'm being overly relaxed about the whole thing. My sense of Bloom's tenure in Boston is that he was, for the duration of his time there, under-resourced relative to the team's capacity and that he didn't really make the most of the resources he did have. Mm -hmm. And so... I think this is what happens when you don't make the most of the resources you do have. I think he'll get another job in baseball, you know. And so I think it's fine. Like, I imagine that somewhere in, like, John Henry's head, and I don't know if it's toward the front or the back of his brain, (laughs) he might be thinking to himself, well, now I won't get booed, you know, if I'm Mm -hmm. out in public around Boston sports fans. Like, now I won't get booed. And I don't think that that that's true because we hold on to stuff for a really long time and sports fans tend to be grudge holders. But I don't know. He was, I'm sure, mandated to trade Mookie Betts. So, like, that's not on him. Did Mm -hmm. he maximize the return he could have gotten for Mookie Betts? I think we can arguably say, no, he didn't do that. Mm -hmm. So does ownership have a role in a pretty sizable one in the fortunes of the Red Sox over the last couple of years? Yeah. I mean, that would be impossible to deny. But I think that we can also look at the last couple of years of Red Sox baseball and and say that, at least to me, it has felt at times kind of rudderless. Mm -hmm. There have been... Times when they have felt like they're, you know, coming and going at the same time, not quite committed to putting a playoff caliber team on the field, not really totally ready to tear it down all the way. We've seen their farm system improve, I think, 
<laughs> largely separately from the guys they acquired for bets. Yeah. But we also have seen that their pitching is really nowhere, you know, for the most part, both in terms of the guys they have in the minors now and what they've had in the rotation, especially at the big league level. They've had up and down bullpens. So I think it's like a mixed bag. And if you had told me that he was going to get another year or two to try to bring along the young guys they do have, I would have been like, yeah, okay. And mm-hmm. if you told me this news today, I'd be like, yeah, okay. So <laughs> it doesn't, I mean, it feels like the amount of spice that it's being injected with has a great deal to do with the Red Sox of it all and a lot less to do with the bloom of it all. But yeah, I think it was it was an unremarkable tenure punctuated by a lot of uninspiring moments and one playoff run Mm -hmm. it it can be hard when you're dealing with executives sort of in this mold because you know i started by saying he was under resourced while he was in boston i think that's true but part of why executives in this mold tend to do well in interviews and tend to get jobs is because they say to ownership well i can get you at least as much, if not more, by spending less. You know, Mm -hmm. that's part of the strategy and approach to roster building that they will talk about when they're interviewing for these positions. So I don't want to tag him unfairly with the failures of the ownership group that employed him because those failures are relevant to our understanding of what this team is going to be over the next couple of years and what what its fans might expect. But I also think that we don't want to let him off the hook entirely because like mm-hmm. these guys go in and say, you're going to spend less and you're going to win as many games. And that didn't happen for the most part in Boston over the last couple of years. So that's... Yeah. I sound like I've taken like a second all. I'm like, really? <laughs> I'm, I, I'm like early days of effectively wild register right now. I'm you from like <laughs> episode years five. Ago. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's like, it's to, been a week. Who could say? <laughs> trying to counteract the, the heat of the takes, I guess, and, on Twitter. By and just like, a, I get why, you know, for me to say, well, it's as it's more about the Red Sox of it all than the Bloom of all is a little unfair because like, this is, I think, a franchise that it is fair for us to imbue with like importance beyond it's the win-loss record of the Red Sox in any given year, right? When you are a team that is resourced in the way that Boston is, when you have the capacity to throw your weight around and you elect not to do that, like I think it's it's fair to feel consternation about that and worry about what it means for, you know, spending more generally and whatnot and like I'm never going to begrudge someone being mad about Boston trading Mookie Betts because, like, you know, it's become kind of a joke at this point. But, like, imagine trading Mookie Betts, you know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I do think it's important for us to acknowledge that, like, we don't have perfect transparency and insight into, like, the back and forth of, you know, all of these decisions. And who knows? Like, maybe they could have pushed really hard and Mookie Betts would have just gotten blown away by a free agent offer and he would have left anyway. Like, we don't know. But they made the decision to move on from him. And it sounds like they made it twice, right, by not giving him a an offer that was sort of commensurate with what the market was thought to bear at that time and by explicitly trading him. So, Explicitly trading him makes it sound like it was like dirty, uh, and it, it might have been. But not, thought it was, yeah, yeah but not, <laughs> but, in a, but not, in, not in a fun way, right? So, no. so all of that to say, I am 
overwhelmed. I imagine that we have not seen the last of Bloom as a front office executive. Mm -hmm. I will be very curious to see what names start circulating to replace him. I imagine there will be some internal candidates, but it will be interesting to see if there are outside voices that resonate with Henry at all and what the reaction of the industry is to that job. Like, if you're ben, so Ben, congratulations. You mm-hmm. are a GM candidate. Oh, uh, I am sorry to see you go, but I want you to pursue your dreams. Mm-hmm. And you are being. I'm Bloom, by the way, hired Jeff Sullivan away from, <laughs> from Effectively Wild when he was still with yeah. the race. So, yeah, but see, I, <laughs> me, Ben, I'm a big person. You know, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not going to begrudge, I'm not going to begrudge him that because Jeff wanted to follow his dreams. And mm-hmm. I'm happy for my friend getting to do that. Did it. <laughs> you know, caused me a lot of heartburn, literally, uh, in the early months of my tenure as managing editor. I mean, yeah, I did. But like, again, I, I'm a I'm a rise above kind of gal. So sure. we're going to move on from that. But like your your congratulations, you're being interviewed by the Red Sox. Like, I will be curious to see kind of what we hear from other industry folks about how they perceive that opportunity because on the one hand like it's the boston red sox been like mm-hmm. storied franchise you know there are especially on the position player side some really exciting young guys in their system you know again you get to hang out like with the weird mascot like you, you know there's a lot to recommend it but they don't really have much in the way of pitching and they are in a division that is just stacked, you know, and is not like really positioned to get worse. You know, if anything, the the team at the top of that division right now is positioned to get potentially a whole lot better over the coming mm-hmm. years in the form of the Orioles. So if what you are tasked with is like, hey, go win quick, that might be hard for Boston, even if they really go whole hog in free agency, even if, you know, a lot of their younger guys sort of break right from a dev perspective. That's a that's a big project right now. Is it as big a project as the Yankees? I don't know. Like, that's <laughs> yeah. a, that's an interesting conversation, too. But I'll be curious to see, like, you know, when the, the names start leaking and we start hearing from anonymous executives about how they perceive the, the Boston opportunity, you know, I'll be I'll be curious to see what that the tone of that um, discourse mm-hmm. is like. So, yeah, uh, Peter Abraham, who covers the Red Sox for the Globe, has already been tweeting about some potential candidates. Apparently, Brian O'Halloran, who is the GM of the Red Sox, right. will not continue to be the GM, but will stay on in some other senior role. Right. So they'll be hiring someone else, presumably. And Pete Abe, just off the top of his head, started listing several prominent executives from other front offices, from the Blue Jays and the Orioles and the Phillies and the Guardians and Atlanta. Don't know that he was uh, linking them based on things he'd heard or just, yeah, these are kind of the generic candidates that you would put on any general manager, president of baseball operations candidates list. But it's funny, I almost brought up Bloom on our last episode when we were talking about the Mets hiring Stearns and how that seemed like such an obvious fit and Stearns was kind of the most obvious, uh, most wanted candidate probably because of his experience. And you would have said the same about Bloom when the Red Sox hired him, right? Because the Rays had had such success under him and any top Rays executive is always going to be close to the top of the wish list of any owner because, again, as I said last time, they want to win, but if they can win without spending a lot 
even better. So it was very much the model, the blueprint of where the Dodgers, let's go get the Rays GM. Right. Let's go get Andrew Friedman. And then we can continue to win. And maybe we won't have to spend quite as much to do that. And the Red Sox probably had the same sort of thing in mind. Let's go get Bloom, and we can keep winning. We can ball on a budget and we'll have the best of both worlds. And that didn't really work out so well. So I basically agree with your evaluation. I think he walked into a tough situation in the sense that he had to be the guy to take the hit of trading Mookie Betts, even right. though I think everyone knew that that was an ownership mandate and he just had to carry out their orders. But if you are going to trade Mookie Betts, then that is going to be forever associated with you. Yeah. And you're very unlikely to get a player of the caliber of Mookie Betts back. But if all you get is... Jeter Downs, who's gone now, and Connor Wong and Alex Verdugo, then you didn't make the most or the best of that bad situation. So yeah, it is true that the Red Sox have not spent as much during Bloom's tenure as they did during some of their championship years. They're 11th in payroll this year. So it is partly a lack of ownership support. But as you're saying, it wasn't like he distinguished himself hugely like there are certainly fines and good signings that sure. he had and i guess the number one feather in his cap would be that he's built back up the farm system so he inherited dave dombrowski's smoking ruin of the red sox farm system right as well as some contracts like the chris sale contract and so he was somewhat hamstrung in that sense and he's built back that system to be currently, according to Fangraphs, number three overall. Right. So that's a pretty good turnaround if it was dead last or just about when Bloom was hired in late 2019. And here we are getting to late 2023 and they have one of the best systems and they're not a disaster at the big league level. I guess what did him in, I mean, 2020, they finished last 2021, they were sort of surprise contenders, yeah. and they managed to finish second in the AL East and go all the way to the ALCS, and so it seemed like, well, okay, we thought there was going to be maybe a longer rebuild here, and and of course, you could have said, well, if we had Mookie Betts on this roster or that roster, I don't know that that would have been sufficient, but like this year, if they had Mookie Betts instead of Alex Verdugo, then I guess they would be closer to contention than they are. But they finished last last year, and now they're tied for last, I guess, with the Yankees currently. So right. if you finish last or are close to finishing last in three of your four years, it's a city and an organization where you're expected to keep winning one way or another. Right. Even though the Red Sox have really... Oscillated. I mean, they've been pretty volatile. They've gone yeah. from last place to winning the World Series like multiple yeah. times and back yes. and forth. So who knows? But but if you sort of settle in as a last place team, not that they've underperformed this season based on what was expected for right. them. They were projected to finish 81 and 81, according to the Fedgrass playoff odds preseason. And as we record, they're 73 and 72. So yep. they basically are we thought they were coming into yep. the season. Maybe it's a problem that that's who they were thought to be, even in that division. But yeah, you could look around and maybe John Henry's looking around and saying, oh, there are teams with lower payrolls than ours that are managing to be good and contend, including Bloom's old team to raise. So 
when you look around, I guess it's very much in the way that Dave Dombrowski got credit for a lot of Ben Charrington additions. Right. It's, it's probably going to be the case that whoever is hired to run the Red Sox, and if the Red Sox go on to be good, then a big part of the foundation of that team will be Heim Bloom additions. Yeah. That's always how it works. It's almost like an argument for keeping your baseball executives for a very long time. That's the case that the baseball executive will make. Like you need yep. to give me five years or seven years or however long to see that plan play out. So if Bloom had come in day one and said, hey, it's going to be a while and this is going to be a rebuild or a step back, but I'm going to build up the farm system and then we will have the player development machine that Theo Epstein was trying to build and sort of did. By the way, Theo Epstein will not be returning to the Red Sox. It has been yeah. reported. Not that anyone really would have expected that, but... But it's going to be the same sort of thing where the next guy comes in and gets all the credit, even though the predecessor did a lot of the work, right? But but even sure. if you look at this current Red Sox roster and you say, okay, the pitching development has been a problem for the Red Sox even back before Bloom, and it has yeah. continued to be yes. other than Bayo this year, right? right. Brian Bayo, other than that, it's uh, there's not a whole lot to hang your hat on, but... Bayo was signed in 2017, so that preceded Bloom, of course, and Tristan Cassis has had his breakout this year, but he wasn't a Bloom addition, so Devers is still around. Devers was the one guy that they did pay, and he's having sort of a so-so season by Devers' standards, and I guess the big bets that Bloom has made, like Trevor Story and Yoshida, I suppose, right? Mm -hmm. So... Those haven't been stunning successes. Like Yoshida's been pretty good, but it's uh, because of his defensive limitations. It's not like an overwhelming win, I guess. And Trevor Story, of course, was hurt for much of the season and has not played well since his return and really wasn't great last year either. So if you kind of like your big swings aren't home runs and then you don't have a whole lot of luck just like finding guys who were unexpected successes during your tenure, then what do you have to hang your hat on other than, hey, look at the farm system. It's it's probably going to get better down the road. <laughs> so right. just give me time. But that doesn't always work in, in a market like this. And I, I think it would be one, it might be a different situation if even, you know, the distribution of talent they had at the minor league level looked a little bit different. But like when you look at our farm system rankings, you know, of their guys who are at the moment viewed as top 100 prospects, you know, we're about to start a new cycle of, of org audits, but like they're all hitters and a lot, while they are a well-regarded farm system and they have at the moment for top 100 prospects, a lot of the value here is being concentrated in depth. So there's that piece of it too. And, you know, I, I just don't know, at least from what they have on the roster now, when you're, when you would look ahead and be like, well, this is when we can really expect them to be good. You know, I think that there's, they're a ways off from that. And some of the stuff, you know, like pitching is volatile. Pitching gets hurt. A lot of the Red Sox pitching got hurt. They had Noah Song, and then he couldn't play baseball for a couple of years because he had to go serve a military commitment, right? Like, there have been some weird things that have happened within this org, but they've also done, like, weird process stuff, and, you know, they were like, yeah, we'll take on 
Eric Hosmer for reasons, you know, it was just mm-hmm. like a, it has, it has felt kind of rudderless at times. And yeah. some of the stuff that makes teams like say Tampa Bay able to do what they do for less money, it does take time to build out. And so it could be that, a, like you said, a couple of years from now, we look back and say, well, the improvements that they made from a player dev perspective, from a scouting perspective, like they just hadn't borne fruit yet. And we're going to look back and feel like, you know, Bloom was sort of unfairly maligned for stuff, you know, setting aside the bets deal, right? But mm-hmm. I, I don't think that he did anything that's going to preclude him from working in baseball again. But I, no. I also don't think that, you know, he did anything that makes me feel like, oh my God, I can't believe that they let this guy go. It's like, well, yeah, this is kind of what happens, you know, mm-hmm. particularly in in markets like Boston. If he had been, I don't know, the GM of the Pirates just to continue our weird snaking Boston GM tree, right? Like, yeah. does he get let go this soon, quote unquote, into his tenure? I mean, probably not, mm-hmm. but he doesn't. He works for the Red Sox and mm-hmm. that comes with a different set of expectations. So, yeah. Yeah. It's been really hard to to classify them. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's hard to put them into a bucket. Okay. These are contenders. These are rebuilders. Yeah. This team is out of it. It's always been hard to tell, like, are they making progress? Are they going right. in the right direction? Is this a contender? And partly it is messaging, I, I guess, not that it's anything disqualifying, but there has been a lot of confusion about defining what the Red Sox plan is. Like at the yeah. deadline, Bloom has always sort of resisted saying, we're buyers, we're sellers. Right. He wants to maintain the flexibility of saying, well, we'll be opportunistic and maybe yeah. there are ways we can add and ways we can subtract at the same time. And I sort of admire that in a sense, like, okay, maybe there's some merit to being flexible and, yeah. and trying to look for ways to help yourself that are in a sense on the surface, almost kind of contradictory, but maybe not. Maybe everyone else is too rigid when it comes to we're adding and we're subtracting. Maybe you can actually do both at the same time. Maybe that's even an advantage to think of yourself more flexibly, but it also has led to a lot of confusion. Like, why are they getting rid of this guy and then adding that guy? And I've read stories about how there's confusion even within the organization. Like, who are we? What are we doing? Which way are we rowing here so that we can all row together? And then I guess more recently, there was that mess with Matt Dermody, the pitcher that they promoted, who had had a a whole history of bad tweets and... They came out and were like, yeah, we did our due diligence. And then then they had to come back and walk that back and say, actually, we didn't really look very deeply into this at all. And we should yeah. change how we talk about this and also what our process is for right. doing these kinds of social media background checks. So that wasn't a moment of glory. Although, again, you probably only have him on the team in the first place because you're so desperate for pitching. So, right. yeah, it's been kind of a confusing tenure. So I guess... The shine is off the rose a little bit with Bloom, but but maybe you, you went with the shine is off the rose and not the Bloom is off the rose. <laughs> how how did I? First of all, Bloom right. is the expression. It's not even shine. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I it was went right from Bloom to shine. Then. 
Oh man! Wow. Well, thank you for calling me on that. Because sorry, that would have been a I don't. I mean, major like, misopportunity. <laughs> I don't want to be like unnecessarily no. antagonistic. I'm not saving right. up my, you know, some vinegar because I've been so level headed about my reaction to this firing. But like, yeah, it's no. right there for you, Ben. Right there. The, the bloom is off the bloom. So now yeah. maybe maybe he'll take a less prominent position somewhere sure. else. You know, he'll have like that. That rebuilds year like a James Click sort of situation. Yep. I'll just go and be an assistant to someone right. somewhere, right? I'll be a senior executive and then yep. someone else will come calling or who knows, maybe someone else will snap him up more quickly than that. But yep. yeah, it was probably not the debut that he was hoping for. I would imagine not, but I also, I have one last, I have mm-hmm. one last little thing. I'm like, the, the timing of this also feels strange to me. Mm. Like, I don't know if I think it's, too early or too late i don't know i like it's september 14th maybe that's just you know you do it on a thursday i don't know Mm -hmm. maybe that's when you do it but it does feel you didn't want to wait two weeks let Mm -hmm. him conclude the season now you got this weird vestigial part of your schedule but i guess you already had that Mm -hmm. i don't know what a weird yeah Yeah, it's an odd one Right. Unless it's just, hey, we can get a head start here on interviewing our candidates, right? There's probably kind of a jockeying for position when it comes to, hey, here's the the cream of the crop when it comes to the front office prospects. So we fire our guy and start our interview process and start our head hunting sooner than we get the, the first mover advantage, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Anyway, I think there are probably some ways in which he gets a bad rap for his uh, tenure and people don't account for the difficulties he faced in terms of what he inherited and the ownership constraints. But also, (laughs) it was, uh, yeah, not the most distinguished tenure. So. The other team, the the Jeter Downs uh, new organization, the Nationals, although he's in the minors, right? But uh, but. What is going on with the Nationals these days? Cause I don't know, man. <laughs> on, the, on the one hand, there's continuity in that they extended that the their manager. <laughs> yeah, well, there's that. But they extended their manager, Dave Martinez, and yeah. now they've extended Mike Rizzo, who is like the third longest tenured head of a baseball operations yeah, department, that, I think, That kind of snuck up on me. It, Yeah, it did, because yeah. you've got Cashman, who, you know, who knows uh, how secure his his job is these days. Can I just, and, res- can I just yeah. say something about that really fast? Like, mm-hmm. I did see a lot of Yankees fans being like, Cashman's next, and I'm like, <laughs> I, I still, and I, I say this because I expect it to be a long time from now, so I'm not you know, doing anything like spooky or pretentious, he's going to die in that seat. Like, I just refuse <laughs> to believe that he is he is mm-hmm. really on the block. So anyway, that is yeah. my Cashman take. No, until I see it, it, it will be weird if and when it happens. Yeah. But but yeah, it's Cashman and then it's John Mazalak. And obviously his Cardinals are not having a great time this season either, but no. he had signed an extension recently, as did yeah. Cashman. So now you have Rizzo, who's been running the show there since 2009. He's been with the Nationals since 2006. He's been president of baseball operations since 2012, I think. He's been through ups and downs, and he built up that team, and they won the World Series, and then they traded away a ton of guys, and they just embarked on a rebuild that they have tried to speed up. And I guess there are some positive indicators there. But when it comes to the ownership situation and the spending situation, I was sort of surprised when I saw that he had re-upped there because yeah. there's been a lot of turnover lately. Yes. Right? 
like a, a close friend of his, apparently the scouting director, longtime colleague resigned and the nationals who are known as sort of a scouting first organization, yes. they just fired a whole bunch of scouts, which yeah, will happen at this time of year. You have a lot of scouts and executives on one year contracts, but this was more than the usual, at least one time dismissal. And, of course, there's the ongoing uncertainty about the state of the franchise and ownership. You, Ted Lerner died. Mark Lerner, the Lerners have been exploring a sale of the team for some time now, which they kind of put on hold for a while. And part of that was the uncertainty about the Masson dispute, right. which was, I think, resolved this summer. After dragging on for years, there was at least a decision, and I think the Orioles and the Nationals each got $100 million, something like that. The dispute going back years and years since the Nationals' old Expos moved to D.C., and the Orioles wanted concessions for that, and they've been sharing this broadcast network. So that maybe has been removed. So amid all that, the turnover in the front office and the ownership shakiness. I wasn't sure whether Rizzo would want to stay or whether yeah. they would want to make a long-term commitment, but yeah. maybe this is part of making the team more attractive, just having some leadership in place, even though sometimes a new owner comes in and wants their own people. So I'm sure that Rizzo wants to sort of stay the course and see the Nationals through to the other side because it seemed like he was quite reluctant to do the rebuild that they did. Yeah. I guess there's kind of a, a similarity here in that Rizzo traded Juan Soto and probably didn't want to, right? And initially came out and said, we're not trading Juan Soto. And then they ended up trading Juan Soto, which obviously yeah. was largely a, an ownership decision too. And maybe so far it's too soon to tell, but they seem to have, uh, their returns for, for that deal and others were pretty praised at the time, at least. And there's been some progress at the major league level. Like, the team has not had a good season, but I think they were expected to be even worse than they've been, yes. right? Like, they've I been that's right. jockeying for fourth with the Mets, which is not what anyone expected coming into this year. So In either direction. <laughs> no. They're last now. They're 65 mm. and 81. It, it's, it's not a good year, but yeah. there are signs of progress, I guess you could say, right? And C.J. Abrams has had a much better year, not looking like a slapdick prospect this year. And Josiah Gray has been better. And Caber Ruiz, I guess, has had framing issues, but has hit okay for a catcher. So, and, and farm system-wise, I mentioned that Fangraphs had the Red Sox rank third, the Nationals rank second. Yeah. So there's uh, hope on the horizon there, too. It's just a weird, it's a weird bundle of things because it's like, I guess you get extending him and wanting to telegraph sort of like stability, particularly ahead of a potential sale. But also there's a ton of instability below him and it took a really long time to get him extended. And then there was all the Strasburg stuff. Yeah. And that you has know, been I, so strange. I don't even I know. know. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I know when I'm trying to convey that you are moving forward, that I handle things with a franchise icon uh, who can barely lift his kids comfortably the way that I handled that, yeah. where he was retiring, but obviously wasn't officially retired. And then there was supposed to be a press 
conference about it, and then the press yeah. conference got postponed. And they I said don't even know the, whose fault it is. It's it's hard to yeah, tell. Like there's been kind of conflicting tell. reporting. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure the truth be, will come out. But. Yeah, and I want to be fair or at least precise and acknowledge that there is a good deal of uncertainty there, and you know it seems like there's recrimination on both sides, but it doesn't. It's not great either way, right? No, yeah, because they announced, or it was reported at least, there was nothing officially announced, but it was reported that there was going to be this going away retirement ceremony and that the Nationals were just going to pay Strasburg what was remaining on his contract because it is sort of silly. If you have a player with seemingly chronic health issues that, that even go beyond the ability to play baseball, Obviously, if you have years left on your contracts and, and many years due to you, then if you just retire, well, the team can say, well, we agreed on this contract and right. you were supposed to play to earn that money. And now you're saying I'm not going to play. And so we don't have to pay you. And of course, that contract was not insured. It's been reported because of yeah. all of his previous injuries. So the Nationals right. are on the hook for that. But it's also sort of silly to like string it along. I mean, if you have a player who clearly is not capable of playing then get some kind of doctor's note or something. It's like the right. Prince Fielder situation almost where, yeah, I guess we could maintain the fiction that he's going to come back and he could say he's trying to come back. And in every now and then, maybe if he play, feels okay, he could try rehabbing or something again. But when it seems so unlikely that he's going to come back, then maybe just move on. But right. it was reported... I guess there was one report that like Rob Manfred had stepped in and had been like, we don't want to set a precedent of paying players their whole contract if they're not going to play and just having them say, you know, they're they're not going to play anymore. Like, what if what if this were some slippery slope and opening the floodgates and everyone just said, I'm retired, I'm not going to play anymore and you have to pay me all my money as if that would happen. And then it was maybe reported that like, the Nationals were trying to cheap out and get out of paying him full freight, but then the Nationals have defended themselves and said that, that that's not the case. And yeah. so both Rizzo, Rizzo has come out and, and said, like, there's been a lot of misinformation, right? He said it's the most misinformed, miscommunicated non-issue of the season and that it's just like procedural stuff that has to happen in this kind of situation. So... I don't know. I don't know if they've been know. pressured yeah. or if they've done anything wrong or what, but it's been a very confusing situation, especially because like Lerner put a statement out where he ended by saying, it is our hope that ongoing conversations remain private out of respect for the individuals involved. Until then, we look forward to seeing Stephen when we report to spring training. Yeah. And then Rizzo was like he lumped that in with the misinformation that like Lerner had supposedly said he expected Strasburg to pitch in spring training, which technically is not what he said. But also when he said we expect to see him in spring training, that seemed like he was at least maintaining the possibility that, or like expecting him to try to pitch. I think most people read it that way as opposed to just like, hey, Stephen, haven't seen you in a while. <laughs> Here we are right. in spring training just hanging out. So, yeah, that has been just a very strange situation that has uh, added to this backdrop of, like, what is going on in this organization? What is going on in this organization? <laughs> <sighs> yeah. And, like, they have a long way to go. You know, I think that there have been improvements. And I think that it sounds like they have, if not a perfect understanding, a better understanding of, like, the places that they are behind 
both from a an analytics and player dev perspective, but like it's going to be a little bit, you know, it's going to take a while for them to sort through that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. It's going to be a while, I think, mm-hmm. until until it's like really in a position for us to be like, they're here, they're back. It's, mm-hmm. it's great, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> so a couple injury-related things t- mm. to mention here. So Max Scherzer is hurt and probably done for the season and potentially postseason. The Rangers have played a little bit better of late since uh, we talked about the potential for them to make miss the playoffs. (laughs) Much to your dismay as a Mariners fan, maybe, but (laughs) I don't wish Max Scherzer injury to be Mm -hmm. clear, but I do wish the Rangers losing. You know, like personally, right? um, You know, personally, (laughs) I do that. Scherzer has the same injury, I I guess, that Verlander started the season with, right? And it's going to take him out long enough that yeah he's probably done for the year won't be back till next year when he's under contract and that's been a recurring issue with Scherzer just durability right he's he's pitched better for the Rangers than he had for the Mets and he has helped them in their pursuit of the division and wild card but will not be helping them anymore so Jordan Montgomery who has also pitched well for them he'll have to be the the big deadline addition but stinks for the Rangers because they went out and Got a Mets ace before the season, and that guy got hurt, and now they've yeah, uh, that? gotten another Mets ace, and, and that guy's gotten hurt. Not that that was like completely unpredictable in, in either case, but still stinks. It's a, a blow as they go down the stretch here. But the other injury that I wanted to mention is Sandy Alcantara. So yeah. we noted this the other day because he went on the I.L., with the dreaded flexor strain that often turns into something more serious. And now it's being reported as a UCL sprain. So it's not clear that this is a full sprain situation. Sprain is kind of a confusing term because sometimes sprain just means tear. Now there's like the lowest grade of UCL injury, like the ligament is just stretched but is not torn. Sometimes that can be referred to as a sprain, but also sometimes a tear can just be described as a strain, yeah. a sprain or a strain. It, it sounds less serious, I guess. It's just a sprain, you know? It's it's not right. like I, I broke it. It's just a sprain, but right. it, it's still bad when it involves the UCL. And yeah. it's just like the UCL just feels like the worst thing about baseball right now, at least when it comes to the game on the field. It's just, it's this like Achilles heel, Achilles elbow of of pitchers and pitching and the sport in general. Because it's not purely a a baseball-specific injury. There are guys in other sports who have torn their UCLs, but it's obviously more prevalent among pitchers. And it's just this weird thing where like, There has to be a weak spot somewhere, and that's what it is. And it's not even, in many cases, a a painful injury. There are a lot of times where it's like, I didn't even know, or something felt off, but it wasn't acute pain. Like, there's sometimes when a guy's pitching and grabs his elbow and, and walks off and it hurts, but other times... It doesn't like maybe they sense that something is amiss like with Otani, but it's not even clear that there's pain. And and sometimes you can't even tell when it happened. Like with Jason Dominguez, it was just like, yeah, this started bothering me and it didn't get better. But it wasn't necessarily like this swing is, is when it happened or this throw. It's just this sort of mysterious, nebulous, weak spot 
And it just, it feels like a flaw in the design of baseball players. And this is just, it's getting worse and worse. Like they're more and more TJs, at least on, on all levels. I guess there have been worse years when it comes to Tommy John at the major league level, but it's happening so often in the amateur ranks. And I don't know what to do about it, but it sucks because you can't count on anyone at this point. Like it's obviously something that befalls hard throwers more often, but not exclusively. And you have someone like Alcantara, who was such a great story last year and was like this throwback, pitching right. lots of complete games, but efficiently and seemingly good mechanics. And then this year started slow, had had been pitching better of late and was still going deep into games at times. And I guess someone who threw a lot of innings and throws hard is not that unlikely a candidate for this, but you just can't count on anyone. It's like any pitcher, they could get hurt at any time on any pitch and you might not even know that it happened. So you're just in this constant state of uncertainty. It's it's not like, oh, he just came back from the UCL injury. He'll be fine now. He's got a fresh ligament. Not necessarily. You can re-injure it. Or, well, I didn't see any obvious sign of pain, so he's probably okay for the moment. Not necessarily. (laughs) You never never know. It's it's really bad. It's just Schrodinger's UCL, and it can derail and disrupt careers. So it it sucks. I, I don't like it. I don't like this UCL at all. We need it, I guess, unless you're R.A. Dickey, but it's just like this point of failure for everyone. And it's uh it's spoiling the sport in some ways. Yeah. I, I don't know what you do about it, Ben, but I wish that we could figure it out. It does always feel like you're just you're just waiting. You're just mm-hmm. by you're sitting in anxious frazzled anticipation to learn like uh, you know that that time he shook his hand or that time he pumped his you know he tried to grab it's just you know every time you know Mm -hmm. yeah i don't like it you know i don't Mm. like it either and it's it's such a weird injury because it it usually doesn't interfere with your non-baseball life the way that steven strasberg's injuries have like if you're not pitching you don't even really need a UCL or it, it won't bother you if your UCL is torn. It it might initially, there might be some soreness, but then like you could go about your business. It, it's like this very specific motion, this pitching specific ailment. I know like yeah. quarterbacks have had it, you know, there's been an NBA player or two is, who's had it, but it just feels like this flaw in the design of human anatomy that has been exposed by this one activity where you're just throwing over and over harder and harder and it's the weak spot there's always going to be the weak spot in the kinetic chain and teams have done a better job and players have done a better job of strengthening their shoulders and and it's good in the sense that shoulder injuries are even harder to repair and at least if it's a ucl strain there's some recourse and you can get a tj and it's fairly reliable and you'll probably be able to come back but it just is an epidemic like jeff passan wrote a book about this and it hasn't really gotten much better since then and i don't know how it's gonna get better because it's not like we're all gonna suddenly evolve like unless we get the future blast scenario where you can enhance (laughs) ligaments and tendons somehow you you can't strengthen it is the problem you can't go in the gym and strengthen your ucl so some guys have stronger ones than others and some people have mechanics that are more efficient 
efficient or place a little less strain on the elbow, but that's always going to be the weak point that is bearing a big part of the load that you're subjecting your arm to. And it's just, it's going to fail eventually. And unless we find a way to either enhance that part of your body or stop players from throwing so hard, and we've talked about potential ways to do that, but it's tough to recondition all the pitchers who've been conditioned to throw really hard. So how do you get them to stop doing that? Can you change the rules in order to encourage pitchers to pace themselves. It's just a really tough situation and it just bums me out every time I see flexor strain and UCL strain or UCL tear or Tommy John surgery and it's just so frequent. So it sucks. Yeah, it just, humans evolve so slowly except when they're X-Men. Then they have, (laughs) as Patrick Stewart would tell us, jumps forward you know? yeah we need to jump forward with the ucl <laughs> yeah well i guess yeah. you don't want it to be adamantium because it needs to be flexible in a way that mm-hmm. like adamantium is not famously Probably, yeah yeah i think that that's canon ben that's my understanding <laughs> is that it's canon man remember the x-men like the animated x-men that was yeah good. well it's it's coming back they're making a new animated x-men are they really mm-hmm. yeah x-men 97 <laughs> But we could tell a we could we could not do that, you know. Like it would be it would be fine if we did well, a different story. Though. You're part of the problem because you remember the original so fondly, and uh, they're going to cash in on that nostalgia. I have not been agitating though, right? <laughs> no, I haven't, you haven't been, been out camp- here like we need to do animated. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like you you know we we're getting Fraser back, mm-hmm. and I feel deeply ambivalent about it, Ben. It's not even set in Seattle. You've, you've no, informed it's in Boston. me. Yeah. yeah, I got to tell you though, I watched the first couple, and it's actually pretty good. I'm very surprised by my positive reaction. <laughs> so, <laughs> I I just don't. I'm going to be so begrudging, conflicted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, they can replace the dog, but they can't replace his dad. That guy's dead. You know, the yes. dog is the original dog is too. But yeah, that um, too. Yeah, you know. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so it it is really a, a quadri because with so many problems about baseball, you could potentially tweak something or change something. Oh, the games right. are too long. Okay, we'll put in a pitch clock or right. the strikeout rate is too high. Well, maybe that's a thornier problem, but there are definitely things that we could do to address that. And with this, it just feels like human anatomy is the enemy. And there's just only so much you can do with more efficient mechanics because more efficient mechanics, that just encourages you to throw even harder probably because you can. And if someone takes uh, some velocity off, like there was a Michael Lorenzen quote in a recent USA Today article about this problem where he was like, I could take something off. I could throw 88 instead of 95, but we'd probably have the trainers running out there. Like, what's wrong with you, right? Because everyone is is coached and taught to throw max effort all the time. So my, my main recommendation, I really feel like it's the number one way maybe to fix baseball is to limit the number of pitchers on the active roster. But even with that, there would be an adjustment period and there would be growing pains and maybe actual literal pains while you forced everyone kicking screaming to adhere to that but something's got to be done like we can't just go on with guys going down with this regularity what do we do what do we what do we do you know like do we do we design fake ligaments do we if we can create a time machine to the future is this what we spend that on though you know Mm. like no, you know, it's not the number one problem facing society. Right. But the number one problem facing society is 
if we were to go back in time and put Mike Trout in a different dev environment, would he have ended up being himself? Like that's yeah. the number one. Well, that's the number one base. Well, I was about to say the number one baseball problem facing society, but that's objectively not true either. But like, you know, once we had addressed some of the the more um, meaningful changes necessary to the timeline, like I would put a ticket in to say, hey, can I go mm-hmm. and do this little baseball experiment? And I'll put it back, you know. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Okay, let me get your thoughts, take your temperature on a proposed solution for another problem, if you consider it a problem. It's an interesting idea. So so this week, I believe, Bill James Online is shutting down. Mm -hmm. I don't know if uh, Bill James's whole online presence is shutting down, although arguably some of it maybe could (laughs) take a step back at times. But but I I will miss his writing about baseball as opposed to (laughs) some of the tweets, at least, that he still makes me think and and provokes some baseball thoughts at times. And he had a, a recent bit at his website about a tier system for the Hall of Fame and also for award voting. So he's arguing basically that the problem with the Hall of Fame, I'll quote here, is not that it has no higher level, but rather that it has no lower level. Mm. It is this problem, the lack of a lower level of recognition, that contributes to almost all of the problem with the selections. So he says, suppose that there was a lower level of post-career recognition, a level on which players like J.D. Drew, Julio Franco, Rico Petroselli, Hank Bauer, David Wright, Cliff Floyd, Mike Cameron, Jose Reyes, Todd Zeal, Johnny Damon, Nomar, etc., a level on which those players were recognized and acknowledged— then there would be a place for those fans who loved David Wright and admired him to go a place of honor and recognition. But the fact that there is no such honor forces people to argue that Johnny Damon is a Hall of Famer or Thurman Munson is a Hall of Famer or Omar Vizquel is a Hall of right. Famer because that's all there is. While a player is active, there are a pretty good array of awards that he can win to earn recognition. He could be an all-star, a gold glove winner, a silver slugger, an MVP, a rookie of the year, a comeback player of the year, a Fred Hutchinson award winner, a Roberto Clemente award winner. But once he retires, it's all gone. He's a Hall of Famer or he doesn't count. That is what forces people to make irrational arguments for half-qualified people like Thurman Munson or Dave Steeb. Probably making some Munson and Steve fans angry with that statement. He says an alternative approach would be to have a 10-level Hall of Fame in which everyone who plays in the major leagues is automatically on level one and certain other persons are also automatically on level one. Bob Fontaine, the scout who signed several Hall of Famers, they're automatic Hall of Famers. Then you have some rule such as for every three players on level one, one gets promoted to level two. For every three players on level two, one gets promoted to level three, etc. You have 10 levels, but for every 19,000 players on level one, the Clint Robinsons, you will have one who is on level 10, Willie Mays. The math is a little awkward. A two-to-one ratio gives you too many players on level 10. A three-to-one ratio gives you too few. Anyway, with that structure, there is always a place for advocacy to go. Amos Otis is on level four, and I think he's worthy of a level five. There's a place for me to go with that, a structure for me to get involved in that. A structure like that would do more to keep baseball history alive and current, make it relevant. And then he extends that to MVPs. He says he would argue that MVP awards would benefit from a similar structure. So everyone now is talking about MVP awards and how close some of the Cy Young award races are. And it's either you win or you don't. Obviously, you could finish second or third or fourth or fifth and get some votes. But 
He's saying in 1910 or 1911, it was decided that each league would have one MVP. In 1961, when there was expansion, they did not revisit that decision. And in 1969, when the league split into divisions, they did not revisit that decision. But what they could have done instead is this. Suppose that each team named their MVP for the season. And I guess there is something like that. It's just no one cares. Suppose that among the five most valuable team players, each division selected the MVP for the division. Suppose that among the three divisional MVPs, one was selected as the MVP of the league. Suppose that among the two league MVPs of the season, one was honored as the MVP of the major leagues. And go even further. Suppose that in each three-year period, one of the three MVPs of a season was honored for having the best single season of the three-year period. Or in each decade, one player from that decade was honored for having the best single season from that decade. So... What do you think of this in principle, a tier system for the Hall of Fame or even for single season awards where it's not a binary, he's in or he's out or he's, he won or he lost, but you get recognized uh, each according to their accomplishments? I like the general idea of there being different tiers. I, I agree in principle that like the way that we th- conceive of the Hall of Fame now, I think, is perhaps insufficiently flexible in terms of recognizing really great careers or recognizing careers that may be burned bright, but we are more likely to remember because they fulfill like the fame part of the Hall of Fame. I think that what, what Bill is proposing in particular is like hopelessly complicated (laughs) in a way that would make people more frustrated than like feel like their favorite players being sufficiently recognized. So I think that if you were going to do this, you would need to do a version of it that is like markedly more simple than what he's Mm -hmm. (laughs) saying. And like, I think that the idea of guys moving between tiers is like, probably not great like you want is you know we we want to be able to say here's what this guy was you know Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. move on i think that we should encourage people to move on from hall of fame discourse much Mm -hmm. more quickly than they do i think that yeah they you gotta let it you gotta let it go you know it's like a it's it's like a typo in a tweet. That's not your problem anymore. Like that mm-hmm. that typo has to live and stand on its own two feet, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's just like your children, you got to send them out into the world at some point, right? But yeah. I think that being able to say like, "Hey, was this guy?" Oh gosh, I I like I'm hesitant to even name real players because I don't want to. Okay, here's a here's a way that we might think about this, Ben. Right? Is this reliever as good as Mariano Rivera was? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, like yeah. very, you know, yeah. arguably none of them have been. Yeah. Is he really good for a reliever? Yeah. He's in the Hall of the Very Good. And we we laud his career and he gets to have a plaque. And maybe he even gets to give a little speech. And mm-hmm. maybe everybody comes together in a part of the summer when it's less hot and humid. I mean, like, as an aside, I get that you can't do it in the winter, but like you guys do it in like July. It's like so hot. But <laughs> like, you know, everybody comes together, his family gets to stand with him, he gets to feel feel appreciated in a way that I think is really nice and that we are appropriately prioritizing as we think about when we let guys in and wanting to get guys in in time for them to like get their roses while they're alive, right? Mm -hmm. Cool. 
But like you can't be moving him around after that. Like once he's in a place, like is no moving him around, and like ten different, like how many different levels is like Scientology with all the different levels? <laughs> yeah. So you know, but a simplified. <laughs> Everyone's like that was exactly where we expected you to go with that, Meg. Was Scientology? So, but a simplified version of this that acknowledges that like. There is a tier or maybe two of player who are really talented, had a tremendous impact on their teams on, you know, maybe had an impact on our understanding of the sport, but aren't the very best of the best like that. That seems like a good solution if if for no other reason than it also, I think, would afford us the opportunity to like spend time with the careers of guys who were important to the sport maybe for other reasons than just their play and like deserve to be memorialized for what they meant to the game and its history but maybe aren't like the best the very best guy right mm -hmm. and i have not given i have not given one single second's thought to how worthy of even the hall of the very good he is so everyone who's like writing a mid episode email lay down your keyboard i <laughs> i make no assertions but like i could see a case for hey like the the really valuable super utility multi-position guy we want to recognize like how that change some of the usage lately. I know that it's not like utility players are new and it's not like guys playing multiple positions are new, but like maybe you maybe you want to say something about Ben Zobrist as mm -hmm. like an archetype of a guy, right? And I'm not saying he, but like maybe you want to yeah. do that. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And then if you had like a, a multi-tiered museum, you could do that with greater comfort because you're not asserting anything about his quality relative to the very best guys. You're simply asserting something about his quality relative to all the guys you're still excluding. You know, mm -hmm. and like maybe that's fine. Yep. Again, I'm not saying like him specific I don't know. I don't like <laughs> but just to pick a guy, right? Or like um, you know, again, openers not really new, but like newly back in vogue. Maybe maybe you wanna say something about like how pitching has changed and so you look at that guys and you're like, that guy, you know, he's really good at that thing. So mm -hmm. I put him in there. Like Scientology. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. There are things I like about this because I, I think it's right just because it's a you're either in or you're out, that does make us stretch for the players we like and advocate for. And it, if they don't make it, it feels like, oh, it's the end for them. Like they'll never be mentioned again. And it also leads to a lot of bad arguments like, well, this guy is in and that guy's better than that guy. So shouldn't this guy be in? You kind of use the, the least qualified player and say, well, he's better than that guy. So th right. be because you have the inner circle best ever guys who are just in the same big tier as everyone else, like some really good but but not all-time amazing players, there's no distinction between them. They're just Hall of Famers or they're not. So – it does lead to a lot of bad arguments and heated arguments and and being a detractor of players instead of celebrating their accomplishments, but just focusing on what they didn't do. So maybe if we had multiple tiers, then we could just say, oh, yeah, he's uh, he still gets honored and recognized, but it'll be a little less heated because it's like if you don't get in tier one, it doesn't mean you get nothing. You just get to be in tier two or tier three instead. Or would it just lead to even more arguments? <laughs> because oh, you'd, yeah. you'd be able to argue about every player instead of just the ones who were clearly at least on the cusp of the hall. Not that people would get as exercised about like, 
is this guy a, a level one or is he a level two or is this guy a level seven or is he a level six? Like the stakes wouldn't be as as high. People wouldn't get as worked up about that and call each other names probably. <laughs> but there would be more to argue about, which I guess would be a selling point from the Hall of Fame's perspective or the media's perspective because mm. – Gosh, it wouldn't just be a once a year talking about a few exclusive guys. You could argue about every single player. What level was he, right? So it would just be endless content. I don't know if it would be interesting content, but if you were into it, it would be nonstop. Every time someone retired, you would have the debate. Is he level this or that, right? So that might get tiresome. Maybe this would be like Pandora's box. We think we're we're fixing the Hall of Fame and instead we're opening ourselves up to a whole bunch of even less meaningful arguments. But on the other hand, you could recognize players for what they did accomplish. And maybe it would keep players in the conversation because now it's like, if you're on the bubble, if you're a candidate, then you get talked about a lot because you have people who are pulling for you and and advocating for you. And then you have people on the other side who are saying, no, I oppose this. But once you are in or out, you get talked about a lot less. It's not a debate anymore. You're in. You still get seen if you go to Cooperstown and tour the museum, you see the plaque, but really you get talked about more when you're like on the ballot for 10 years trying to get in than you do after you get in. Probably Scott Rowland was getting more ink before he got into the hall, though I'm sure he's happy to be there. But but this way, in theory, at least, no one would really be forgotten because everyone would have their appointed place, except maybe people just wouldn't pay attention below a certain level and they wouldn't really care. So you'd fade into obscurity anyway. Yeah, I'm I'm reticent to invite more debate. And poor, you know, poor Jay is sitting there like, please, I already <laughs> do so much. Yeah. You you simply cannot ask any more of me. I have written every <laughs> profile there is to write. I can't write any more than I already do. Yeah. I hadn't thought about how much more people would talk about it. That is a knock against yeah. But, but But it would be like a constant background hum instead of like, it's Hall of Fame season. Here we go again. We're gearing up for the, the Hall of Fame wars. So there'd be fewer slings and arrows maybe or, or they'd be blunted a bit. It would be I, like barbless hooks. I don't know. I think there would be as many, but there would be so many targets that like yeah. the they wouldn't be concentrated. Would you start voting? <laughs> Maybe this would be such a different situation. And yeah. You'd have to start from scratch, really. I mean, you know, you're not going to get the Hall of Fame to say, yeah, let's completely reorganize this. So it would have to be a, a new organization. And, and obviously there are other Hall of Fame alternatives sure. out there. And I guess this is not unlike, you know, my boss, Bill Simmons, with his uh, NBA pyramid idea. It's having tiers and, and levels that's not completely new, but but applying it to baseball in this kind of way. As for like single season awards, I think it's less necessary because we already have, you know, second place finishes and third right. place finishes. So right. it's not like if you don't win, you still got votes. You were still in the running there somewhere. Right. And and there is, maybe it's an American culture kind of thing, but we, we really like, we want people to win or lose. 
And we're kind of less comfortable with the gray area, mm-hmm. which I think that's why Americans are so opposed to ties. It's like, what? A tie, a draw? It just ends and no one is declared or, or the winner or crowned at the end? Wouldn't that be unsatisfying? I think it'd be okay. It obviously works for other sports okay, but there's a lot of resistance to that. So there'd probably be a little resistance to this too. It's like, no, we want the big winner. Either win or you'll lose. I guess there's like a a gold glove and a platinum glove. I mean, that exists, but I don't know that anyone really cares for it or that the concept has caught on. See, it's so funny because like I really like, and we, we have versions of this for, for baseball, but like I really like like just doing like first team, second team, all mm-hmm. pro. Like that yeah. is my preferred end of season in part because you can you can recognize more than one person at each position. And you, you know, especially in a sport like baseball where, as we talked about on the last episode, like it is so unusual for one one person to really make or break a season. Like I, I like the idea of there being multiples and it being put in a roster context because that's how baseball works, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, someone listening to this might say, like, well, Meg, you know, the they do first team, second team, all pro for like the NFL. They still have an MVP award, right? They still have mm-hmm. offensive and defensive rookie of the year. They have like they have individual awards. And like I think that's fine. You can have them in conjunction with one another, but I think that structure appeals to me greatly mm-hmm. and you know my my radical thought on the end of season awards ben try this yeah. on for size and i say okay. this in an unofficial capacity but as a member of the bbwa i think we should all vote on all of them hmm. why don't we okay. all vote on all of them yeah it is very silly to limit it to what is it 30 per yeah. award so you so take stressful. this already not big body and then you're slicing it into a, a tiny yeah. little subset so it's not yeah. even necessarily representative of the whole group Right. And part of it is that it's not representative of the whole group. And I think that people in general take their rewards votes seriously. And I think that in general make choices that are at least defensible, even if I don't agree with them. But there are always a couple of times where you're like, whoa, what mm-hmm. was that? And yeah. and people don't know or don't care to remember exactly how the process works. And so then we all get tagged with that nonsense, even <laughs> mm-hmm. though the, you know, for the end of year awards, like the results are online. Um, and for everyone, you know, we don't get to opt out of having our ballot published unlike with the hall of fame. Right. So mm-hmm. people should know, but they still don't. And then they get all flustered and they are like, why are they like that? And I'm like, I don't know. Go ask the guy who did the vote. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. I haven't gotten any pushback on my ballots um, when I've had mm-hmm. the honor of voting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's because really only one of the times that I've done it has there been um, any real debate about the question. And as we discussed last year when I was um, agonizing over Strider versus Harris, not really a bad way to go with that vote, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. no. So I, I'm not, you know, like I do not envy our colleagues who have to contemplate like NL Cy Young. That sounds yeah. like <laughs> a very anxiety producing exercise because there's, you know, there are a lot of worthy choices depending on what you care about most. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Sorry, you guys. You should make everybody vote on that stuff so that you don't have to feel so on the spot. But maybe it's mm-hmm. good to feel on the spot. I don't know. You know, sometimes we wither under attention and sometimes we really thrive, Ben, you know, <laughs> like in Scientology. Yeah. 
<laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, with this, uh, you wouldn't have to pay, at least, to, to get into a higher Hall of Fame tier. It would be about how you played. Right. But, but I guess the other argument against needing a new structure for this is that the stats are so good now or, or so reflective of player value, at least opposed to what they used to be, Yes, that maybe we don't even need this anymore because wouldn't the tiers just end up, you know, would it just be sorting by war or by Jaws, which is a combination of peak and career war? Like, you really maybe needed something like the Hall of Fame decades ago because there was no well-respected, well-conceived overall value stat. And so you could talk yourself into anyone being great or not great, and there was no kind of agreed-upon standard, whereas now we're closer to that. And so there's more of a consensus, certainly among voters, about how good players were. So maybe this is just sort of unnecessary at this point, unless you're going to account for things that war can account for, like, are you famous? Are you right. a character? Are you a legend? Whether or not you were that great a player, maybe you made some major contribution to baseball history. Maybe you were a pioneer. And I do think the Hall of Fame should do more of that. And you mm -hmm. have things like the Baseball Reliquary and the Shrine of the Eternals that can recognize players for that. But would this tier system recognize players for that? Like, could you get in a higher tier because you weren't that great a player, but you did something notable? You know, you were right. Mark Fidrich or something like you were a part of the baseball tapestry. But even if you didn't have that long or accomplished a career, or then would we just end up with even less productive arguments again? Because like some people would be voting based on stats and other people would be voting based on things that go beyond stats. And then it would yeah. be just a, a big mishmash. Mishmash. It would yeah. be a mishmash. A, I mean, it's a hosh, hodgepodge too. Hodgep hodgepodge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hodgepodge. I enjoy uh, saying it's got a, yeah. it's a turn of phrase with nice mouth feel. Hodgepodge. You know, mm -hmm. it's satisfying. Like stew. Yep. yep. All right. Well, we want to wrap up with some stat blasting here. Yeah. So, we've got some news for everyone, although it's uh, it's not really new, it's more like a comforting return to an old friend, because yeah. the Stat Blast segment is once again sponsored, and it is sponsored by one of our two <laughs> former sponsors <laughs> in the history of Effectively Wild, Tops Now. Tops so, Now. People will recall that Tops Now sponsored some Stat Blasts earlier this year, and yeah. uh, they liked it so much that they're back for more, and they're yeah. sponsoring a new set of Stat Blasts now. And we'll give you the, the quick spiel if you're just joining us and you haven't heard our previous plugs of Tops Now, but these are baseball cards that are made very quickly and that you can purchase very quickly. And they are limited stock and limited time only and limited availability. And they are about singular events or individual accomplishments or sometimes team accomplishments, but they're made to commemorate something special that happens in a game or in a season. And 
then you can buy a baseball card of that. So as opposed to in the past where you'd have to wait for the new year and the new season to get a baseball card of a player and it would just usually be of that player, not of something specific that that player did. It's almost like, to tie it to our previous topic, this is, it's like a tier system sort of thing for baseball cards. It's like, okay, everyone gets your your one standard baseball card, or these days, of course, they have many varieties of baseball card. But this way, you can get a baseball card if you just had one great game, you know, then you get a baseball card of that. And someone who was at that game or saw that game or thought it was an impressive accomplishment can then buy that baseball card and commemorate it and they can put it in the sleeve or the container where they store all their other cards and if you're a fan of a particular player you can collect all their tops now cards or a fan of a particular team you can get all that team's tops now cards and it's usually just a handful a fresh set that becomes available every day and you can go get them they're only available for a day and you can purchase them and they will ship them to you And uh, you don't got to catch them all, but you could catch them all if you want, or you could catch them selectively. But it's a a new way of doing baseball cards along with the old way. And we think it's uh, kind of a a cool innovation in the baseball card space. Space. Tops now. Go to tops.com and you can find out which cards are available on any given day. We will, of course, link to that on the show page as well. All right. I will give you some stat blasts here, some of my own devising and some of frequent stat blast consultant Ryan Nelson's devising and some prompted by listener questions. So here's one, for instance, that we got from Craig in Charlotte, North Carolina, who says, am I the last person to realize Zach Granke has a win-loss record this year of 1 in 15? (laughs) 1 in 15? Wow. Two, Two question marks. And yet, he still has a positive war, albeit mm. barely. How does any of this make sense? And Craig says, P.S. I'm the one who emailed years ago before Ronald Acuna's first MLB game about what it would take to sign him to a lifetime contract. At that point, I think I proposed in the neighborhood of 15 years, $375 million. I guess that probably would have been a bargain in retrospect. Yeah, but how about that? What's going on with Zach Granke is that Sadly, he's not a very good pitcher anymore, and he plays for a very bad team. (laughs) The combination of those two things will lead to a 1-15 in win-loss record. So he's not been as bad as you might think based on that win-loss record. And, you know, we don't think about win-loss record all that much these days anyway. But when it's 1-15, that's uh, that's very bad. And that's one reason to keep – calculating and presenting these stats is like the historical continuity and just the comparisons to past seasons. So it is true. He is just a tad above replacement level. Baseball reference has him at 0.3. Fangraphs has him at 0.5. And I guess that's because the peripherals are not quite as bad as the ERA. So he's got a 5.47 ERA. He's got a 5.04 FIP. I'm guessing Baseball Reference War is doing some defensive adjustments there that are probably helping him out and and boosting his war somewhat. I don't love how they handle that in general, but the Royals, not the worst defensive team, but Mm -mm. not a a great defensive team. So obviously, like this is a combination of Granke being old and not having the stuff that he used to and just a lack of support from the Royals. In fact... 
the there is a stat at baseball reference called run support per innings which is like run support it's like run scored by the team per 27 outs while the pitcher was in the game as a pitcher Zach Greinke at least among the players that they have on this leaderboard dead last 2.3 runs of support per wow. 27 outs while he's been on the mound so yeah he's not pitched great but also, the Royals are, are giving him bupkis when it comes to support. And it, it sort of stinks to see him go out like this if this is his last season. It's kind of like Adam Wainwright, who's a few years older than Zach Krenke, if you can believe it. Zach Krenke's almost 40. But Wainwright's been just like trying to get to 200 career wins, and it's taken him forever. He just got to 199, and I guess he has a few more cracks at it. But... He's, I think, 4-11 and 11 on the season, and Granke 1-15. I was kind of hoping he'd get to 3,000 strikeouts, too, just because uh, I like Granke, and I think he should be a Hall of Famer. I don't think you should even have to make a bad argument to get him into the Hall of Fame, but, yeah. but, but if he's not a Hall of Famer, then he could benefit from the tier system, the level system, you know? Yeah. <laughs> he'd, he'd be a level 2 or 3 or something if he's <laughs> whatever. I don't know how it works, but <laughs> right? So he'd get something. He'd get some kind of recognition, but... He's at 2,966 strikeouts, and it seemed like with someone like him, who's pretty clearly a Hall of Fame caliber pitcher in my mind, but not in everyone's mind, that maybe that round number might have helped. Anyway, if the question is, like, is this unprecedented? Is this, like, the worst winning percentage ever? No, not quite. If we do minimum 10 decisions in a season and go all the way back, so you have Zach Greinke at... 1 in 15, which is a 0.0625 winning percentage. Ahead of him with at least, uh, actually, let's do minimum 15 decisions. It's a little bit cleaner. If we do that, then we have Mike Parrott in 1980, who was 1 in 16. And Tom Sheehan in 1916 was 1 in 16. And Art Hagen, back in 1883, he was 1 in 16. Anthony Young in 1993 for the Mets was 1-16. And then you have 1875 John Cassidy, 1-20. I guess that was a National Association guy. And 1916 Jack Neighbors, 1-20. So this will be slightly out of date, possibly, by the time people hear this, because Granke is pitching Friday against the Astros. So he could be 2-15, or he could be 1-16, or... Potentially, he could still be 1-15 in 15 if he gets a no decision. But even if he goes to 1-16, in 16, that would put him in a, a second-place tie, I guess, for worst ever. So there has been at least someone or someone's worse than him. So that's some consolation. Neil Payne recently wrote for The Messenger, it is the worst winning percentage by someone who won a, a Cy Young award at any point. So <laughs> like any, you know, post Cy Young award winning season, former Cy Young award winner, it's uh, it's the worst by that measure. So that's bad. And there was an item in David Lorela's uh, most recent Sunday notes where Jay Jaffe helped him out and, and said, has any Hall of Famer had a, a worse winning percentage than this? And no, <laughs> if you go by a 10 decision minimum, I guess Robin Roberts was one in 10 in 1961, but his current winning percentage would be the worst 
of any Hall of Famer, if, of course, he ends up being a Hall of Famer. But there have been way worse seasons by Hall of Famers, like just in terms of ERA or ERA plus or whatever. So it's it's not the worst ever season by <laughs> a pitcher who's very accomplished, just in terms of winning percentage, arguably right. it is. And that's as much the Royals' fault as it is Zach Greinke's. So Those Royals. Yeah, that's, that's some consolation. I should mention also that even if you remove that qualifier that you had to have a positive war, that doesn't change much on the top of that leaderboard or laggard board of the worst winning percentages ever. Probably just because in order to get 15 plus decisions, you have to have pitched pretty well that they keep running you out there and maybe getting a little unlucky. The only negative war guy who shows up is Frank Bates, who pitched for the notorious 1899 Cleveland Spiders primarily, and went 1-18 with a 6.9 ERA, not nice, and negative 1.2 war. Also, in Greinke's defense, I did a stat blast on episode 1855 about how not only are starters getting a lot fewer decisions these days, but wins, especially, are scarce, because starters don't go as deep into games. So if you era-adjust his winning percentage, maybe it would be a little bit better. Still bad, though. Okay, so that was a question from Craig. Also got one here from Sam, Patreon supporter, who said, I have a potential stat blast idea for you. After tonight's game, Matt Olson has 51 homers. He tied the Atlanta franchise record or the Braves franchise record. Tied Andrew Jones, of all people. Hmm. <laughs> it's probably not who you think of, but yeah. yeah. And Atlanta has or had at the time 50 losses this season with 17 left to play. How many times has a player finished with more homers than his team has losses? Whoa. I wasn't sure how to query for the answer, but just from looking up a few obvious candidates, Bonds did it in 2001, Maris and Mantle both did it in 61, and Babe Ruth did it a few times in the 154-game era. But McGuire and Sosa did not do it in 1998, nor did Aaron Judge last year. So yeah, this is a really rare accomplishment, and I was able to look this up. Just counting players who were with one team all season. It's uh, an exclusive club that Matt Olson, for now, is on track to belong to. But there are some Negro Leagues greats, of course, just because they had shorter seasons, uh, regulation seasons at least. So, you know, you have a bunch of Josh Gibson seasons that qualify or Buck Leonard or Willie Wells or Ted Strong, etc. But if we stick with longer seasons and go with ALNL, then the biggest differential, home runs minus team losses, is Babe Ruth, Murderers Row Yankees, 1927. Of course, he had 60 homers, and that team went 110 and 44. So that's a gap of 16 dingers. Then Roger Maris, as mentioned in 1961, 61 homers, 53 team losses. Here's one you might not have summoned from the top of your, your head. Albert Bell. In 1995 mm. with Cleveland, which was a, a post-strike shortened season. So that's why, I guess. But he had 50 homers and Cleveland had 44 losses, if you count that. Then 1921, Babe Ruth, 59 homers, 55 losses. 1927, Lou Gehrig, 47 homers, 44 losses. 2001, Barry Bonds, of course, 73 homers and 72 losses. 1928, Babe Ruth did it again, 54 homers and 53 losses. And Mickey Mantle, 1961, 54 homers, 53 losses. And then, as of now, at least, you have Matt Olson, 51 homers, 50 team losses. So 
I don't know. I uh, I don't know if, if he can pull this off, but it would be quite an accomplishment if he did. Aaron Judge last year just missed because he had 62 homers and 63 team mm. losses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Remember when the Yankees were good? Yeah, it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> hey, they're they're a winning team again. They've uh, poked their noses above 500 for yeah, now. Yeah, they so have. The streak could be alive. We'll see if it if it stays alive. All right. And then here's a, another quick one. This was a, a Ryan Nelson special. So Ryan Nelson frequents that blast consultant. You can find him on Twitter at RSNelson23. And he was asked by Lewis. He said, I see Joey Votto's Reds are playing Miguel Cabrera's Tigers. This got me thinking, when was the last time two players age 40 or older homered mm. in the same game? By Ryan's count, this has happened only six times ever. And they're all wow. recent, all in the 21st century, and five of them involved the 2006 Giants and Barry Bonds. So, wow. so in 2006, Barry Bonds did this twice, playing Steve Finley, who homered, and three times with Moises Alou. So hmm. that's five of the six times ever, apparently. And then wow. 2016, David Ortiz and A-Rod. And okay. that's... That's it, apparently. Wow. Yeah. I would not have expected that it was that unknown, but yeah. I guess it's maybe not a coincidence that you have some PD guys involved sure, here, sure. right? This was an era where you had uh, abnormally productive late career and advanced age batters, <laughs> so that may have contributed to it. But yeah, I guess, you know, there aren't that many 40-plus position players in any given year, especially like full-time players. And once you get to that point, you're probably not hitting that many homers anymore. So yeah. it sort of surprised me, but maybe it makes sense. And he says there are 10 other times with two 39-year-olds. It's surprising. It is. Okay. Here's a question from Sam, who says, I'm a Royals fan. Tonight, this was September 5th, the Royals won on a Bock-Off walk-off mm. Bach for the second time this season. A lot of Royals fans have been wondering if that's a record in a season. I'm sure it's not, given the long history of baseball and everything, but I was curious what the highest number of Bokoffs in a single season is. I'm sure it's low, but I think it would be interesting to explore. This was a different Sam than the previous Sam. So Ryan reports that two actually is a record <gasps> and that apparently no team has even ever done it twice in a season previously. What? So... Yeah, and and he was able to Google up an answer, but also his his data shows the same thing. 23 walk-off box in history going back wow. to 1914. So it's very rare. Wow. And he says 1943, 2000, and 2011 were the only previous seasons where there were two walk-off box, period, much less by the same team. So this wow. is it's really rare. Yeah. So well, that's cool. Imagine how bad the Royals will be if, if they hadn't had an unprecedented two walk-off boxes season. I and guess. you raise such a, a dark question after such a fun fact. Yeah. Real guess, land of contrast. I, I guess they wouldn't be that much worse, but they might be one or two wins <laughs> worse. I wonder... Hopefully, uh, I wonder they whether either... They wouldn't be that much worse because they already <laughs> suck. Yeah, right. Did either of the Zach Greinke losses, oh. uh, was he spared a loss by a walk-off buck? I don't know. Would, it, would that have been even worse? Anyway, 
that's uh, something you can say you saw some history if you're yeah. a Royals fan this year. Walk off Bach. I mean, as Bach. we noted, Bachs have been up a bit more this season. Yeah. They are calling more of them What with yes. the, the new rules. They're enforcing that a little more rigorously. So yeah. I guess that has something to do with it. But yeah, it's just weird. Yeah, it's weird. Okay. Here's one from Simon, Patreon supporter. I was at a minor league game tonight, and the Richmond Flying Squirrels hit a home run in each of the first seven innings. What's the furthest into a game a team has done this? Not sure if minor league data is available, but would be curious to know the record in both MLB and the minors. So just uh, keeping it to the majors here. Ryan says 52 teams have hit a home run in each of the first four innings. Mm. Eight teams have done it in each of the first five innings. One team has homered in each of the first six innings. And that same team did it through seven as well. That is the record. And it was done by the Twins against the Padres hmm. on September 12th, 2017. So Brian Dozier hit a solo shot in the first. Jorge Polanco hit a two-run homer in the second. Jason Castro hit a two-run homer in the third. Eddie Rosario hit a two-run homer in the fourth. Jason Castro hit another, this time a solo homer in the fifth. Eduardo Escobar hit a solo shot in the sixth. And then finally, Kenny Vargas hit a three-run homer in the seventh. That made it 16 to nothing, which was the final score. And wow. uh, the other seven teams to do it through five, the Angels in 85, the Brewers in 96, the A's in 2000, the A's in 2003, the Astros in 2004, the Cubs in 2012, and the Reds in 2021. And those uh, 2017 twins... They, I mean, that was a, a year of, of high home runs, right? It, it was not quite the 2019 twins or 2019 scoring environment in general. But uh, but 2017 was like the second highest year ever for home run rate. So I guess, you know, with a lot of these uh, unusual or, or unparalleled performances, it's a combination of the team and flukiness and the environment uh, being yeah. more conducive. Than, than usual to that sort of thing. I guess the 2017 Twins didn't actually hit that many homers. Obviously, in 2019 they did, but Every, this was I mean, like this was the did. this was the pre Bumba Squad Twins. This they were like 16th in homers in 2017. So, all right, that was one more. Now here is one that comes from Max, who says with Lucas Giolito. Once more on the move, my mind wonders to the following thought, which MLB player holds the highest war season total while playing on at least three teams? Mm. Bonus, why stop there? Four teams, five teams? Giolito's 1.4 fangrass war feels perhaps top 25-ish to me. So here are all the players. Now, Ryan sent me all the players with six-plus war on two teams in a season and i'll put these lists online but you you have a bunch of guys with six plus war who played with at least two teams uh leading with charlie sweeney and billy taylor in 1884 sadie mcmahon in 1890 dupee shaw in 1884 but ricky henderson 1989 he had an 8.3 war season played for two teams uh cc sabathia famously of course in 2008 7.7 .7 war season two teams 2010 cliff lee 98 randy johnson mm. you may remember that one 2018 manny machado 
I could go on. There's a longer list. I'll put it online. All players with three plus war on three teams in a season. Slightly shorter list, but Mike Piazza, 1998. He he leads with 6.6 war despite playing for three teams. And then uh, 1884, Al Atkinson. 2002, Cliff Floyd. 1890, Ed Daly, a lot of 1884 and 1890, probably the Union Association in 1884 and the Players League in 1890 must have been a lot of player movement. And the war years, uh, Buzz Clarkson, 1942, Mark Witten, who is one of those players uh, I mentioned recently, like who are the players who you you always use your nickname when you say their name? You always have to say hard-hitting Mark Witten. Yeah. So hard-hitting Mark Witten in 1996, <laughs> uh, Doc Ellis in 77. Again, this will be online. And finally, all players with non-negative war on four teams in a season. (laughs) So we're low in the war bar here because if you're on four teams, you're probably getting passed around. You know, it's hot potato. No one wants you. So so 1884 again, Harry Wheeler, 0.8 war, played for four teams. 2000, Dave Martinez, 0.8 war. 1943, Jimmy Ford. 1904, Frank Helsman. 1977, Dave Kingman. 2022, Yu Chang. 2021, Michael Feliz. Oh, and okay, here's the final final. Only two players have ever played on five teams in a season. I guess it's it's Bobo Leonard, who played for five teams in 1924 and had 0.54 and... Former Effectively Wild guest Oliver Drake in 2018, of course, famously was uh, constantly changing teams and ended up with 0.54 playing for five teams. Should have known. Yeah, you can be a positive contributor despite no one wanting you or alternatively, lots of teams wanting you. Yeah, we don't uh, have to be negative about it. Yeah. All right. And then last one here comes from Luke, who says, I was watching the Cubs Pirates game on Sunday, August 27th, and the broadcast mentioned that Ian Happ has reached base safely against the Pirates in 56 straight games, which is the record for any player against the Pirates with Stan Musial in second place. That got me wondering, how does that stack up against records for an on-base streak for one player reaching base against a single team? So to be precise, we, we must specify this is not just consecutive games, but consecutive starts because okay. there, there was one game in there where Ian Happ pinch hit against oh, the sure. Pirates and struck out. So if you count that, then that snapped the streak. But if we're talking about, you know, usually when you talk about an on-base streak or a, a hitting right. streak, you get a full game in there. I mean, if it's a hitting streak, if it's, you know, a Joe DiMaggio situation, I, sure. I think you any game goes. But for this fun fact to work then he reached base in a record number of starts. So Ryan looks this up and said, for consecutive starts, he shows Ian Happ holding an active streak now of of 64 games, not 56. So that's the 13th longest streak in baseball history for starts and the longest active streak in baseball. Musial capped out at a streak of 54 against the Pirates. The two longest streaks of getting on base in starts against one team are both by... Go figure, Ted Williams. He was pretty good at getting on base. So he had a streak of 86 starts versus the White Sox and 88 versus the A's, both ending in 1951. Williams also has the sixth longest ever with a 70-start streak versus the Senators. 
And the top of the list is littered with all-timers, Ted Williams, Barry Bonds, Rogers Hornsby, Joe Morgan, Carl Yastrzemski, Tris Speaker, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, etc. So Ryan gave me the lists by both games and by starts, so I will link to both of those on the show page. But for Ian Happ to be 13th longest ever, like looking at the players ahead of him, Ted Williams, Ted Williams, Rudy York, Barry Bonds, Chet Lemon, Ted Williams again, Hornsby, Morgan, Johnny Pesky, Buddy Meyer, Rogers Hornsby, Carl Yastrzemski, and then Ian Happ. I mean, that's uh, that's a name brand list of names there. Mostly yeah. Hall of Famers and, and you know, like level two or, or three Hall of Famers, too. So for him to, to crash that party, not that he's cool. a bad player, but, you know, it's, it's I guess, like a, a really long on Bay Streak, I was just going to say, like, is is that a better reflection of true talent than a hitting streak? I guess you can fluke into an on-base event just like you can a, a hit. And the record on base streaks are longer than the record hitting streaks because, yes. of course, you can get on base more ways than just via hit. But this is this is notable. You know, it's like even underselling Hap to say it's like the longest streak against the Pirates. Right. Yeah, it's... It's one of the longest streaks ever. Ever. And he's not like a great on-base guy. I mean, 343 career, 358 this year, 342 last year. Like, this is a low OBP era. He's he's clearly better than average, but he's not a great standout when it comes to that. You'd think it'd be like Juan Soto or someone, but right. no, it's Ian Happ. <laughs> I have made the case multiple times that we should have greater respect for on-base streaks than we yeah. do. and. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that we like take note of them on a different scale than we do for hitting streaks, right? They, like you said, they, they tend to go longer. And so we don't really start paying attention to them the way we did. But, you know, I think we, we perceive walks as not being work. I think we, we view them as presence and that's mm -hmm. why we don't have the respect for it in the same right. way that we do for hitting streaks. And I say that we should, we should, like them just the same or we mm -hmm. should like them more than we do even if you don't want to do it just the same so yeah yeah i guess it's a, a little less exciting if you it's like will he get on via a walk or a hit by a pitch or something like the daily in and out following it wouldn't be quite as exciting I mm -hmm. guess, but you could also, I don't know, like a hitting streak, you could just easily fluke into it or fluke out of it, yeah. right? So Sam wrote about this too and, and talked about like, will we look on the on-base streaks as the greatest records uh, eventually? And, and it, just like it, it wasn't tracked in the same way at the time, like people didn't realize yeah. it was happening you right. know so so it's hard for it to have the mythology yeah. of the DiMaggio streak which everyone was following and then also the fact that everyone was following it like the pressure is more intense right I guess now there'd be pressure someone would notice that that you were going for that on base streak now but you know it wouldn't be quite as exciting I guess on a day in day out basis probably I guess not but it's still cool you know yeah. maybe yeah. it's Maybe it's not as exciting. And because of that, maybe the pressure isn't on in the same way. And so you mm -hmm. have a slightly easier time of it. And as you noted, multiple avenues to getting on base, whereas you right. only can do the one thing to hit or to get a hit. Rather, you have to get one. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah. I don't know. There's still 
it's hard work. It's hard yeah. work, Ben. The on-base streak, it could potentially last longer, which would mean you could be excited for longer. Though I mm-hmm. guess it would take you longer to get excited because you'd mm-hmm. be further away from the record. But yep. also, I guess the the counter to that maybe is that it would be less dramatic most games because you'd you'd go down to your last plate appearance less often because there are more ways you can get on base than sure. ways you can get a hit. And so more often than not, you would be getting the on-base event earlier than you would be getting the hit. So there'd be a sure. little less suspense laid into the game. Sure. But yeah, Sam was saying like, it, it feels wrong to him to like a walk is is bad for a guy who's trying to keep a hitting streak alive, right? Which is counter to the way we understand baseball now and yeah. to value, and so right. it, it it fits better where we could right. celebrate any on base event, as you're saying. It's not yeah. just a gift that you get. Sometimes yeah. it is, you know. Sometimes you get a bad is, but... call or bad framer or whatever, but yeah. but sometimes you're drawing the walk. There's it's right. an active process. Right. It it is sometimes a gift, but as you said, like sometimes hits are gifts too. And mm-hmm. if you are, you know, inclined to listen to the more conspiratorial <laughs> right. um, among among us this year, like all the time, so many yeah. gifts, little presents for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Joe DiMaggio got some official score gifts. Uh, it was sure. said at the time, certainly, to keep his streak alive. All right, we'll wrap up. With the Future Blast, which comes to us from 2059, and from Rick Wilbur, an award-winning writer, editor, and college professor who has been described as the Dean of Science Fiction Baseball. He says, The return of a classic Yankees attitude marked the 2059 season as the Bronx Bombers went for power by bringing in Real Madrid's Lonzo brothers to New York in the hope that Mateo and Hugo would energize a Yankees team that had finished out of the playoffs for four years in a row. Oh my gosh, Armageddon. The contracts for the Spanish sluggers were at the 1.5 billion mark for each for five years. The brothers oh. did their jobs. Yeah, there's probably been some inflation by this point, but, I mean, you know, yeah. it's, it's a global game, too. The yeah. brothers did their jobs. Mateo hitting 56 homers while hitting 298 and Hugo contributing 44 more, along with a dandy 345, 440, 460 slash line. Mateo added a gold glove and left. The Yanks, revitalized on offense, also got a solid season out of their pitching staff led by ace Josh McClanahan with 22 wins and a 1.12 ERA, the Bob Gibson number, with an impressive whip of 1.01. McClanahan was enhanced, of course, which drew some parallels to his uncle, Shane McClanahan, who underwent the enhancement of his era with Tommy John surgery in 2023, rehabbed it in 2024, and came back better than ever in 2025 to enjoy eight more good years before retiring. That's good news. Despite the Lonzo brothers' expensive excellence and the solid pitching staff led by McClanahan, the Yankees didn't quite make it to the World Series, losing to the Twins in a crucial seventh game in the Hill CS. That's good news. All right, the Twins, they beat the Yankees in Game 7 of the LCS, who knows, when Hugo Lonzo's towering shot to right field with two men on was caught in a dramatic reach over the wall in target field by Twins gold glover Robin Basquette. Basket, B-A-S-Q-U-E-T-T-E. I guess it's a, a basket catch. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure many commentators of 2059 have made that joke as well. 
probably. All right, just to follow up on something from last time, we talked about Tommy Edmond, who's a switch hitter and has been experimenting this season with switch switch hitting, essentially picking spots selectively not to switch hit. While still switch hitting most of the time, he will sometimes opt not to and will hit from the same side as the pitcher he's facing, just based on the matchup and the pitch characteristics and the repertoire. And I was saying I can't remember this happening before with the regularity that he's done it this season. Because you'll get guys messing around sometimes, maybe they'll hit from the same side against a knuckleballer back when there were more knuckleballers or there would be some other extenuating circumstance but what Edmund is doing against right-handed pitchers this season he's batted lefty 263 times and righty 56 times so still acting like a regular switch hitter most of the time usually opting for the platoon advantage but 56 times so far this season opting for the platoon disadvantage and I asked Ryan Nelson for a list that might help me identify previous switch hitters who had dabbled like this, and I cannot find any who made as many plate appearances without the platoon advantage in a season when they were still usually opting for the platoon advantage. I'll put the spreadsheet online if you want to check it out and look for precedents, but there just don't appear to be any previous switch hitters who were so prolifically not switch hitting while still remaining predominantly switch hitters. I think Edmund is breaking new ground here, because there were some cases where players would sometimes switch hit, but mostly not, which is different from Edmonds sometimes not switch hitting while mostly switch hitting. And then there are cases like Pablo Sandoval in 2015. He just stopped switch hitting entirely at some point in that season. He resumed in later seasons, but he went cold turkey for a while. He wasn't doing what Edmund is doing. He just stopped switch hitting entirely. Or there were cases like Randy Wynn in 2000 or Roberto Almar in 1997 where Wynn had a wrist injury and Almar had a shoulder injury and they were limited to hitting from the same side for a while. That wasn't a choice though. So as far as I can tell, and of course we don't have complete splits for all past seasons, but based on what we do have, I think Tommy Edmund this season has been a switch-hitting pioneer or a switch-switch-hitting pioneer, despite the fact that one would think it would place you at a disadvantage to not only face a same-sided pitcher, but to do it rarely enough that you're not used to facing a same-sided pitcher from that side. So I don't know if it's helped him, I don't know if it's a good idea, but I give him points for originality. And I also award my imaginary points to anyone who supports the podcast podcast on Patreon, which you can do by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up to pledge some monthly or yearly amount and help us keep the podcast going and stay almost entirely ad free while getting themselves access to some perks. Kellen Dalrymple, Olive, Sam Minter, Stuart Babender, and Brian Good. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the effectively wild discord group for patrons only, as well as access to monthly bonus episodes and playoff live streams coming up soon and many more goodies, including ad free Fangrass memberships and autographed books and personal messages and discounts on merch. I could go on, but instead, I'll just tell you to visit patreon.com slash effectively wild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. Anyone and everyone can contact us via email at podcast.fangrafts.com. Send us your questions and comments. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash effectively wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We'll be back with one more episode before the end of the week. Talk to you soon.
effectively wild. 